Good evening. Good to see you all here this evening. My name is Brandon. I am the lead pastor here at Westgate. And I know most of you, but uh, not everyone. But I want to welcome you to our, our Life on Mission conference. Um, if you are familiar with Westgate Church, you'll know that every fall we do a missions conference where we talk about what God is doing around the globe. We spend time with our missionaries, praying for them, learning what, uh, what they're doing, and uh, supporting and encouraging them. Uh, we started this conference three years ago to kind of help us remember that missions is not just what we send people to do in foreign contexts, but that God has called all of his children to be part of his mission to make disciples for Christ. And so the focus of our time this weekend is to prayerfully be equipped and encouraged in gospel ministry right here in New England uh, so that we would be living life, our lives right here, every member as a missionary in every sphere of life as part of our mission field. And uh, to do that, uh, that means we need to talk about evangelism, and that's our focus for this weekend. Living on mission is more than evangelism. Uh, it's, it involves loving our neighbors, it involves laying down our lives sacrificially, it involves being part of, uh, partnered with a community uh, together in the gospel and for the gospel, but it is not less than evangelism. And when I use that word evangelism, I'm talking about sharing the gospel of Jesus, uh, just explaining the good news of Christ to someone else. And that is a scary word for some of us. Uh, it's a it's a scary idea. It means uh, you know for some of us, uh, it's the uncomfortability of wondering, is this person, am I going to have a relationship with this person when we're done talking about Jesus or not? That's a big roadblock for some of us. Uh, for some of us, it's it's scary because we're not sure what to say. Uh, we're not sure, you know, what if they ask me a question I don't know? Um, what are they going to think of me? Uh, you know, it, in, a, in a bygone era, it was culturally advantageous to be identified as a Christian. Uh, we don't live in that era anymore, and certainly not in New England. And so just being labeled as a Christian, there's so many connotations. Do I want that association? And if I bring up Jesus, what are they going to think of me? There's all these different kinds of fears, all these different kinds of questions that come into play when we think about this calling to make disciples for Christ. And so our goal this weekend is uh, to to ask God to bring some clarity and some courage, and some compassion and conviction to this call, and to do that by helping us refocus on the good news of Jesus itself, on the gospel of Christ, letting that be the center of our ideas and our experience with evangelism, that that our motivation and our message would be anchored in the gospel and shaped by the gospel. And for that purpose with that topic, I've asked my friend Eric Raymond to come be with us this weekend. I'll tell you a little bit more about Eric uh, when I introduce him more formally before he speaks, but uh, real quick, Eric is the first person that I met on Twitter first before I met in real life, which is just you know a little fun fact, but Eric grew up in Massachusetts and pastors a church in Nebraska. I grew up in Nebraska and pastor church in Massachusetts. And so somehow we connected over that. 
and, uh, and you know, interacted, talked on the phone once. We actually met in person a year ago. It was great. Uh, but he's a, a, a wonderful servant of the Lord, and I'm really thrilled for him to be able to be with us this weekend and to help us think, how does the gospel of Jesus encourage us, equip us, motivate us? How does it direct us in making disciples of Christ? And so uh, what uh, we're going to sing a couple songs to the Lord together in just a minute. Um, but just a couple of quick housekeeping things for the weekend. So uh, thank you to Lillian and to Nancy Brown and to Becky Borland who helped kind of organize and put some things together. The reason you've got name tags and a little conference folder to guide you is because of the work that they've done. Uh, and so you should have got a little folder when you came in. If not, there are more out there. But that's got the schedule for the weekend on it. So that'll tell you. Uh, what's happening when, there's space to take notes, there's a little bit of information about Eric in there. Um, there's also a book table uh, kind of in what we call the cry room around the corner. And what we've done, what we try and do each year is kind of pick uh, titles that are specific to our conference topic um, and uh, that are good resources just to be able to get them into people's hands. We don't make any money on that book table. And Crossway Books and The Good Book Company uh, were extremely generous uh, in giving us 60 65% off those titles there. So there's some great uh, resources there. You can peruse those. That'll be open during the breaks uh, and then afterwards tonight as well. Um, so that's just there for your, um, for, to help you. Um, the last thing is if you need child care, I don't think anybody does tonight, but that's downstairs and we'll be, uh, again tomorrow morning. Um, and the last thing I wanted to mention is that after we're done up here tonight, we have some dessert downstairs. And so, uh, invite you to stick around and, and enjoy that and, and converse. Um, and, uh, I think those are the main things on my list I wanted to go through. Let me pray for us. And then, uh, Drew and Rob are going to lead us in some singing, and uh, we'll get going. Gracious Father, what a privilege it is to be able to call you Father. And Lord, we acknowledge that that is uh, because of nothing that we have done. It is your love, it is your grace, it is your mercy. And God, we praise you that your mercy is not just for us, but it is for others as well. And that we have the privilege of being part of your kingdom uh, not only in enjoying the blessings, but in sharing them, Lord, and in making Christ known. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this weekend. We pray that you would give us a clearer and a broader vision for what you want to do in making uh, disciples here in New England. Pray that you would encourage our hearts, convict us of sin, help us to follow you more faithfully, joyfully, willingly, and help us to be part of the advance of your kingdom. Help us to be faithful uh, to make disciples and encourage us, Lord, where, where we're scared or confused. Uh, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would be with Eric tonight as he guides us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have uh, a short bio on Eric in your conference folder, so I won't go into all the details, but just by way of introduction, uh, Eric and his wife, Christy, have six kids, that's right, uh, Bryce, Luke, Elena, Alexis, Zoe, and Bo, and Bryce is 20, and Bo is 
four. So there's the spread. They're a busy family. Glorious chaos. Uh, Eric grew up in Lemonster, not far from here. And uh, when he joined the Air Force, that took him to Omaha, Nebraska, where he was stationed at Offutt. That's where you met Christy, right? Oh, Texas. Okay. Um, close. Omaha. Not really. Um, but, uh, and he's been in Omaha ever since. Um, I don't know if you'll tell any of your story or not. We, we heard a little bit of it on a video a few weeks ago uh, that we played. But uh, it was at working at, at Air, off at Air Force Base where he met the Lord through a, a co-worker who was faithful to share the gospel with him and uh, spent the next few years um, working, going to school, eventually worked at Omaha Bible Church for a few years and then was asked to plant Emmaus Bible Church four years ago, four years ago. Uh, in Omaha, and uh, another just small world piece. Several of my friends are part of his church. One of the, one of my groomsmen is a uh, is uh, involved in his church. So it's just kind of a funny. Uh, always the church is kind of like the mafia. Everybody's related somehow. Uh, but anyhow, it's really neat. Eric um, is a regular contributor uh, to several publications. If you've ever read Ligonier. Or um, uh, there's a blog called For the, For the Church that's excellent, Table Talk. Um, and he has his own blog on the Gospel Coalition and has recently authored a, a DVD curriculum uh, called Gospel Shaped Outreach, which is what we drew the topic of this weekend from. And I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow morning. But I just want to welcome Eric to uh, speak to us tonight on what is the plan, the Great Commission in the in the history of, of Scripture. So let me pray, and Eric, you can come on up and uh, join us. Gracious God, thank you again uh, for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to be encouraged, to be guided, and that you would give grace to Eric as he ministers to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Brandon. Well, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Thank you, Brandon, for the welcome and the introduction and for the chance to be with you all uh, this evening and uh, in the weekend to to say that I have a, a particular burden for Massachusetts is is an understatement um, just growing up in Lemonster and never heard the gospel at all uh, growing up in our home or in the, the community where we were and then to to hear the gospel get converted and and then to, to stop meeting people. Brandon and other people uh, that are here ministering and, and doing good gospel work. It's such an encouragement. So uh, just letting me be here and to talk about evangelism is, is a tremendous encouragement. Uh, so thank you all for that opportunity. Uh, I guess it, overall, sometimes when we talk about evangelism, when you talk about missions, people have the tendency to kind of feel like they're getting beat up a little bit and think, oh, we're just... I don't do this really well, and I really know I need to do a better job at this. And oh man, and you kind of might leave deflated, or uh, even tomorrow I might feel discouraged. And I just want—I just want to tell you, my my goal isn't to pile on guilt or make anybody feel deflated or discouraged. In fact, what I'm praying for, much like what Brandon spoke of earlier, and what he even prayed for, is that we would feel equipped and encouraged uh, to to speak to others the gospel, that we wouldn't feel like we have to have all the answers, but that we would know the gospel and feel a burden, uh, that we would feel compelled to tell other people about Jesus. Uh, so 
not to feel discouraged, but to feel greatly encouraged and maybe even have some of that burden lifted up and saying, hey, maybe at some point, whether tonight or tomorrow, you say, I can do this. This is the encouragement that I need. Uh, I know some people that I can be praying for and that I can go talk to and pray that the Lord would use me. So hopefully you find yourself encouraged through the weekend and even uh, towards Sunday morning as well. I suppose when we start off talking about evangelism and mission, we should ask the question, what is evangelism? That's what we want to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about evangelism and its placement in God's big plan. So if you think about the word evangelism and just in your mind answer the question, what do you think of when you think of evangelism? When you ask that question to people, you get all kinds of answers. Uh, Sometimes you might think of the guy with the the big board standing outside, maybe Fenway Park or something, as people are coming in and he's tactfully saying, turn or burn, or something like that, or protesting something. Or evangelist, you might think of somebody with a uh, a really expensive suit and a really outrageous airplane, and they're on the, the, the Bible TV channel or something, and they're the evangelists, and you think of that person. Uh, or, or maybe you think of a really extroverted person who's faithful to tell other people about Jesus, and you say, I'm not super extroverted. I'm more of an introverted, quiet person. I'm not really like that. So, when we think about what evangelism is, let's not think about people types and maybe even things we've seen. Let's just think about what the word means and how the Bible defines it. So the word evangelism comes from the evangel, or which just means the good news. So the evangelism has everything to do with the gospel. So the gospel is the evangel, or the good news. So the good news about Jesus Christ is what we tell other people about. So it's the good news that we know as Christians that God saves all those who put their faith in Christ. Those who trust Jesus are forgiven of their sins. And that's good news, because apart from the good news, we have the bad news, separation from God, hopelessness, lostness, and eternity in hell. But the act of evangelism... J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he, he says that evangelism is presenting Jesus, the divine son who came to save a ruined race, presenting Christ as the only mediator between God and man, presenting Christ as man's only hope in this world or the next, summoning men to receive Christ as both Lord and Savior, preaching the gospel. Maybe in a a bit more concise and simplified manner definition, which we can probably remember. Max Stiles in his book, Evangelism, very helpful, short little book, says evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. I really like that little definition. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. So you have the gospel and you want to teach it to people. So there's content, but there's a a way in which we're speaking, that is that we want to persuade them of the truth. Because when people reject the gospel, aren't they just putting their hands up and they're saying, I'm unpersuaded. That's what rejection is. I'm not persuaded. So Max's definition is really helpful because he's saying it's teaching the gospel, the good news, with an aim to persuade. What I want you to see about that is that evangelism is rooted both in the action and the message It's both the action and the message. The action is that you are, we're faithfully engaging others. So we're talking to people. That's the action. 
But then we have the message. We have to have faithfulness with the gospel content. So let's just illustration-wise, if somebody was super faithful with the action, but extremely unfaithful with the message, are they doing good evangelism? Let's just pick on the Mormons, let's just say. Super faithful with their bringing their message to people. But we would have some significant issues with the content of what they're saying. In fact, we would say it's bad news because it's not telling people what the Bible would say about salvation in Christ. And then on the other side, we could say we have the gospel message, right right doctrine, right orthodoxy. We believe the truth, but we're not active with the gospel. So we're not doing evangelism. You see, you need both the content and the action, faithfulness with others and faithfulness with the gospel. Now, think back to when you first became a Christian. For me, that's almost uh, 20 years ago. It's amazing to think about that. But just think back to when you first became a Christian. Maybe that was five years ago or 50 years ago, whatever it was. Did anybody have to tell you to go and tell other people about Jesus? Did you, did you need anybody to say, uh, brother, sister, let's, uh, let's go to Matthew 28. I want to remind you about the Great Commission. No. Cause it just, it just came out of you. It just, you, you just exuded gospel. You just want to tell everybody you meet and, and all of that stuff about being made a fool or being looked at funny. As you would talk to people about Jesus, you wouldn't even really pick up on that stuff. Right? Because you just, it's about Christ and what He's done. I remember when I got converted, I thought I was going to tell everybody about Jesus and everybody was going to get saved. Because it's the first time I heard it, so I'm thinking, obviously these people had never heard it. So I'm telling people, and they're, yeah, whatever, get out of my face. What are you doing? You know, Just like I'm the walking junk mail guy. I'm just keep delivering junk mail or the telemarketer or something. And just like, get away, get away, get away. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you people? Do you, do you see who he is and what he's done? But over time, I would confess to you that that evangelism reflex that you have, kind of your early reflexes as a Christian, kind of begins to get subdued because you kind of get punched in the nose a few times, right? And you, you kind of got made fun of and you kind of got ostracized. And, and this happened with me. Regrettably, I, I began to fear man rather than God and fear man rather than love God. And, and before you know it, I'm not as bold with the gospel. I'm not as active in evangelism. In fact, I'm, I'm beginning to be a little bit reluctant to share my faith. You see how we mature, right? And become cold. So I'm sure if we were to go around the room, we could probably attest to a gradual decline in our own evangelism. One of the things that we begin to do when we notice that and say, oh yeah, for sure, super active, not very active, is we begin to convince ourselves of reasons why we don't do it. And one of the primary reasons that Christians grab onto, we might not say this initially, but eventually we would say it, is that we really believe it's somebody else's job to do it. We think, okay, we got the specialists over here that are, are going to do this job here, and I, I'm more of a, a support person. So I'm over here doing this, and these people, they feel great about running around telling people about Jesus, but me over here, I, I do this. And while it is true that there are some people that are particularly gifted as evangelists, 
they're not the only people called to share the gospel. Just like all Christians are not gifted, let's say, with the spiritual gift of service, probably not, but everybody's called to serve. So the evangelists, my take on Ephesians 4, is that the evangelists in the context of equipping the church, actually one of their main jobs as evangelists is to equip the church to think biblically about the gospel and how to do evangelism well. That's why Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist because he's equipping the church to do it. But behind that is the truth that we as Christians are all called to do it, whether we are extroverted or introverted, whether we are very bold or we are more timid. Wherever we are on that on that continuum, we are all called. And I want to draw your attention to a passage that we'll revisit several times this week, and it is Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So let's just turn there to Matthew chapter 28. need to remind you that the context is that Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive, and his disciples are astounded by what they are seeing. So this is Resurrection Day morning. Everything that Christ said has come true. He is the King. He is the Lord. And we read this in chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the sovereign King of this whole world. As a result of that, kingship of Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. So we look at that passage and you say, see, that's just for the, the 11 disciples, the leaders in the church. It's not for anybody. Just look at that verse and I, I, I know you'd look at that and say, Well, the problem with that argument is that in that very verse, it tells them to teach everything that I've commanded you to the new converts. So the 11 need to go out and make disciples. And then they need to train these disciples. So they need to see people converted, brought into the church, and this new church is going to welcome them in, and then they're going to teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And what's one of the things that he's commanded them? to make and train disciples. So right in the heart of the Great Commission is the command for all people who name the name of Jesus to be disciple makers. It says nothing about the gifting of evangelists at all. This has everything to do with the calling as a Christian. We're all called to be in the ministry of the gospel, to make disciples and train disciples. That is the teaching aspect. And you see the aspect of this. It's not all of us in this room, have our individual commission. But the church has a commission. And as members of that church, we take that job and do that together. That's why one person is not going to be able to teach everybody everything. It's the context of the church and the gifting and the baptism. So you see, they're baptized, they're brought into the church, they're taught, they're discipled, and part of that discipleship is is going out. Does that make sense? So I think just really important on the front end to think about this, we, we could say, what is Jesus' favorite evangelism program? What is it? It would seem that the church is his evangelism program. That's what he wants. People brought out of the world into the church for the purpose of reaching the peoples 
in their in their neighborhoods and then in the nations because this thing extends all the way to the nations. So where are we with evangelism? So evangelism is something we know we need to do or maybe we've just seen it for the first time. So we see it there. We know we need to do it, but we often struggle with it. In fact, there was a survey a few years back by Lifeway, uh, the research arm of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and they found that 80% of those surveyed believed that they had a personal responsibility to share their faith. So 80% out of those surveyed, we have a job to do evangelism. But over 60% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the last six months. about that? 80% said that's our job. 60% said we're not doing our job. And then LifeWay went further and they identified eight biblical attributes that are consistently evident in the lives of maturing believers and sharing the gospel had the lowest score among those surveyed. So that just tells us that evangelism is something that we know we should do, 80%. But 60% aren't doing it, and even among those who are doing it, it's the lowest. It means that we have a biblical understanding of our responsibility for evangelism, but an incorrect application of this understanding. In other words, we know what we're supposed to do, but we're not doing it. And so I think if we just think about that, where, where our own lives are, and just think, where do I line up? If, if, if I'm answering the survey, would I say, yeah, it's my job? Well, the Bible seems to be clear, so let's say, yes, it's my job. How have I done with it? And just think about this, not, not for guilt, but just to, to line up, just say, this is something, maybe this is on the back burner, maybe the eye's not even on. Maybe I need to take this thing off that back burner, put it on the front burner, and crank it up, because it's not getting the attention it needs to. If it's been six months, it's been a year since you've talked to somebody about Jesus, that's not on the front burner. And so maybe a conference like this, just to take some time and say, I'm going to give a few hours to this and thinking about it will help us to do that. And one of the things that I have found for myself personally, for our church, and just talking with other Christians that has been so immensely helpful in thinking about evangelism is to put it in the context of the big picture. What's the plan? What's God even doing with this? What, what does it matter that you and I, wherever we live, so you're, you're in the communities in the, the Metro West here, around Boston. What's the big deal if you do or don't tell people about Jesus? What's, what's the big deal? Like, what's the, what's at stake here? Why does God call you to do it in the first place? And what's the, what's the difference if you do or you don't? I want to think about that with you. Like, what is the, what's the big picture of what's happening here? So to do that, we have to think about the beginning and the end. This is, if, if you think about the Bible as one big story, Genesis to Revelation, one book, one story, all about Christ and his gospel, God keeps his promises, then it's helpful to see that there's, there's a linear plan, there's a, there's, a, there's a theme that goes throughout And we see it when we think about evangelism. If you just look at the beginning, turn to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. It might be surprising to think of Genesis when you think about evangelism, but I think it's so important to. 
Because you just think about think about every organization that exists. It exists for a purpose. Right? So somebody had an idea at one point to create this organization and to turn that idea into a reality. And so it's the leader's responsibility of an organization to take that vision and implement a strategy or a plan to go ahead and, and achieve the goals. So if you're an athletic team, what's the goal? It's to win. If you're a business, the goal is profit. If you're in the military, it's the defense of, of the homeland and their interest. But the church, the mission of God, he, he has a vision and a plan for the church. And with Jesus as the head, call him the CEO, if you will, of the church, he's in charge. He has a vision. And he, in Matthew 28, he says, I want to see disciples made. And you say, well, what's the strategy, Jesus? I'm going to use Christians. You say, well, where does this come from? Is this some new thing? Oh, no, it's been part of the plan from the very beginning. And we see that in Genesis 3. Do you remember what happened at the resounding theme of chapter 1 of Genesis and even into chapter 2? Over and over again, everything is good, everything is good. And then very good when he makes Adam and Eve, it is very good. We come into chapter 3 and we see that something very, very bad happens. Adam and Eve sin. And not to go through all this, I'm sure you're familiar with it or you could read it on your own, but basically the story in chapter 3, verses 1 and following is Adam and Eve sin. Instead of honoring God supremely and listening to His Word, they rebel against God, they sin, they eat from the tree they're not supposed to eat, they make judgments based on their own authority, and they rebel against God. And God judges them. But God pursues them. In the words of grace, he pursues them and the, comes after them to talk to them and to bring them back for judgment. But he pursues them in grace because he's going to give them good news. And you see in verse 14 and 15, there is this judgment between the serpent, who is Satan, and Adam and Eve. And you see the judgment in verse 14 on the serpent. And then chapter 3, verse 15, you have this Wonderful verse that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring or your seed, the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head. That is, the seed of the woman shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the significance of this verse in the midst of the Garden of Eden is that God announces victory. He says that this plight that you are now about to enter into, which is going to be horrible, there's going to be death and there's going to be pain and every single problem we have in the world today is traced back to this issue of the Garden of Eden. But in the midst of that, he says there's going to be victory. There's going to be salvation. What's going to happen? There's going to be a child of Eve that is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to land the victory blow. But there's going to be pain caused to him, not ultimate pain in terms of uh, absolute death. But he's going to feel the pain of the cross and then he'll raise from the dead. But here's the promise of victory. So in the midst of this, you have this great promise of God winning the victory for his people. And just to let you know that this is definitely the way they took it in chapter 4, Adam and Eve right away begin thinking about, okay, we need to get relief from this and we're going to obey God's commands and we're going to have children. And that's what they do. 
They begin having children. And every child, the descendant of Eve, after Eve, is looking forward and saying, could this possibly be the offspring, the one that's going to come and bring relief from this curse? And that's the promise. But you take that a little bit forward into chapter 12 of Genesis. Just flip over a couple of pages in your Bible. Chapter 11 is the the famous chapter of Tower of Babel. Basically, God said, I want everybody to spread out. And the people said, no, we think we're going to spread together. We're going to unite together. And they build this tower and they're going to worship basically themselves and their achievement. And they're making a great name for themselves. And that's what God is going to judge them for because instead of making a great name for God, which is what they were called to do, they're making a great name for themselves. And so God is going to judge them and He judges them and spreads them out. But then there comes one from the line of Shem, which means name. And from the line of Shem comes this child, this man, Abram, and God promises him. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is just a, a wonderful promise. You see the difference. In Abraham, or Abram at this point, who comes from Shem, which means name, God is going to make himself a great name and bless the nations. Prior to that, disobeying against God and following the path of the serpent, they are trying to make a great name for themselves. And God says, I am going to save people through the line of Abram. What a great promise. So that all the nations will be blessed. That's the way the gospel begins. The good news that God is going to save people. But you'd want to say, okay. And obviously, you look at Genesis and there's the rest of the book of Genesis is basically the the zoom in on Abraham and his family. But you would ask the question, what does mission accomplished look like? What does it look like to see people from all nations coming together? Well, we see that in the end of the Bible. Look over to Genesis chapter 5. Uh, Revelation 5, I'm sorry. Revelation 5. What a great scene here. It's Wherever you are eschatologically, this is a picture of heaven. And this is a view into heaven. And the reality is that Jesus Christ is glorious. And he is enveloped in the praise of his people. And you have this vision that John gets. And basically there's this scroll. It's this curious, this intriguing scroll. And most people would believe that that scroll is the, the title deed of the earth in, in, in bringing about the kingdom in its fullness on earth. And John finds himself crying in verse 4. He's weeping. It's that wailing that you would do at a funeral because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. In other words, you have this scroll that's going to bring about restoration and peace and all the promises, everything even promised to Abraham and to Adam and all the Old Testament promises and no one's worthy to open it. And we have one who is able. Look at verse 6. 
It says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So you have a lamb, a lamb standing as though he'd been slain or literally slaughtered. And he, verse 7, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. So it's the, the idea of Christ, the Lamb, coming and taking the scroll because he's worthy to open it. So Jesus has authority to execute the contents of that scroll. And John is viewing this vision into heaven. And this is, this is the whole plan coming together. And John has this kind of heavenly portal to see what's happening. And he's beside himself, right? He's so excited. And then you see in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Jesus is worthy to open it because he was slain, slaughtered. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is he saying there? He's saying that Christ is worthy to take the scroll and to execute its contents because he has been slain. He's the lamb who was slain. And he not only did he die, but he died victoriously. And part of what Christ purchased on the cross is a people. He bought people on the cross. Think about this. Just let this sink in. On the cross, Jesus was purchasing his people. That's what it says. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed or you purchased or you redeemed people for God. There are people that Jesus died for. His people. He purchased them. And He died for them so that they would be saved from their sin. And then just as certainly as He purchased them, you notice the the the, the their origins, where they come from, from every tribe and language and people and nation. How about Those whom Christ purchased are from all over, all over the earth. Not just one people group, but all people groups. And then verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's just think about this. Who shall reign? Who's going to reign? The people. Who are the people? The people are the ones that Jesus purchased. Do you see the line of thought there? You purchased, they will reign. You purchased, they will reign. You see the confidence. It is absolutely certain the ones that Christ died for will in fact reign. It's glorious. It guarantees the success of the mission. The people that Christ bought will, in fact, reign with them. This is, this is so encouraging from an evangelism standpoint. Christ's success is shown on the cross and that He died for our sins. Christ's success 
is ongoingly shown through the work of the Holy Spirit as those that he saved come to himself. It's success. The plan that was in just seedling form in Genesis 3, he will crush the head of the serpent, comes into focus in Abraham, the nations will be blessed, comes all the way to the end of the Bible and you see every tribe, nation, people, all people groups shall reign. Christ. It's success. It's a glorious truth. And you see the reaction to this. Verse 12, or verse 11, And then I looked and I heard round the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's not let this fact escape us, that the fodder, or the basis for the hymns in heaven is the triumph of Christ. When we sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, right? that's all we're going to sing about. The glory and goodness of the gospel. The beauty of the Lamb who was slain. The fact that He is so faithful and powerful to come and to save us. It's the triumph of the gospel that brings us to sing. Now, you look at that, you, you have the gospel beginnings. Crush the head of the serpent, coming through Abraham. And you could go through all the Old Testament and you'd see that, that bud just grow. And then you have the end, mission accomplished, accomplished. You purchased, they shall reign, glory to Jesus. The question comes up and you say, how? How does this happen? How do we go from beginning and what's the vehicle that brings it from promise to realization? It's right back into Matthew 28, isn't it? Let's go back there with fresh eyes, perhaps. So we look at it again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He brings them together and he gives them the speech. The plan has been promised and has been absolutely accomplished with the cross and will be certainly fulfilled. And here, he says that this big, eternal, glorious, beautiful, praiseworthy plan rests on the shoulder of these 11 guys. This is, this is almost in one sense, if Jesus wasn't absolutely sovereign and utterly wise, you would look at this and you'd say, I just have a little bit of question here. This is just a few days ago, these guys were running for the hills. They were scared. You have Peter, the toughest one in the lot, who's scared of a a little teenage girl. He's afraid. And now these guys are going to go to the nations. 
with the message that Jesus is the King. This, at first blush, you look at this and you say, how in the world can this be? But then you think about who we're talking about. As Jesus is speaking, He's speaking as, if, as the one who has just conquered death. He's risen from the dead. There's no power to stop Him. Hear the words again. I have all authority. That's why He speaks like a monarch when He says, you know the social borders, the economic borders, the ethnic borders, they're all wiped out. Go through them all and get My people with the Gospel. That's his plan. And then as we've already unpacked a little bit earlier, that plan doesn't just stay with these 11. It goes to all of us, to the church. So how does it, how does it strike you tonight to sit here and to say, wow, from a human perspective, the population of heaven depends on me. Now, I know that those of us that really want to be correct and qualify, and I'm with you, I love to qualify things theologically. You're going to say, well, but, but, Eric, come on. God's sovereign. He's going to save His people anyway. What do you, you don't mean to say that it depends on me. Well, no, absolutely God is sovereign, 100%. But He uses means. He uses us. So yes, He's utterly sovereign, but the actual population of heaven comes through the preaching of the Gospel, the bringing of the message through evangelism, people like us. Abraham was an ordinary guy. And God gave him a tremendous blessing. We are ordinary people given a tremendous blessing. We're called to go to the nations, all people groups, ethnicities, countries, the gospel is a message for everyone with a pulse to be delivered by everyone who has a pulse. For Christians, we're called to bring the gospel to people. And then you read the rest of the way the book of Acts plays itself out. So you have the early church, and it seems like they got this. The guys that were so scared of all the people are now suddenly standing before the kings and the religious leaders. And they're just standing there and, and, and taking their lumps, even to the point of coming back and acts and says that they, they praised God, that God counted them worthy to suffer for the name. And then they're in the midst of getting beat up and they're praying for the sovereign Lord to act and they want to see people saved. Amazing. P, uh, Stephen getting stoned and he's preaching the gospel. What a, what a powerful display of not counting your own life, but laying it down for so you have a, a massive change that happens when people get converted and understand the gospel and when truly the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and makes us to be His. You spread that gospel to the nations. Now, let's just think about this. It goes not only to the, na- the, the nations, but also to our neighbors. So I know that this church is very committed to to missions, whether that's local missions or international missions. As as Brandon and I were talking, 
So that's great encouragement. But God has also strategically placed you, if you're a Christian, in this community for the purpose of being a missionary. Now, strictly defined, the word missionary means somebody sent by a mission organization or a church body to cross cultural lines to bring the gospel to them and see churches planted or gospel expansion. So strictly speaking, sent with the gospel, crossing cultural lines. So living where you live in Massachusetts, do you think there are any cultural lines, perhaps, that you cross on a daily basis? Extremely cross-cultural, extremely strategic when you think about this. And then you just think about the the context of this congregation that's spread out in in some 20-plus, almost 30 uh, 30 cities, towns, throughout. So you have a, 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 a church that gathers and scatters. So I just might ask you, what, what would be the strategic plan of God to take people that have been deputized, called as ambassadors, and sent into their communities? Why would he do that? I think he would do that so that you would have the joy and the privilege of speaking the gospel to maybe neighbors, co-workers, people at the gym, people at the grocery store, people at your, where you do recreation, where you do refreshment, wherever, wherever you are. Opportunities abound. But it's just like, I don't know if anybody else is like this. It's a personal illustration, so if it doesn't work, maybe, maybe something else will. But if I would be driving home from work, and I notice there's traffic. So there's, say, six different ways that I can get home. What should I say? But if I'm watching for traffic, then I'm noticing, okay, I can divert early. Or, oh, nope, there's traffic. Well, I can go fast here, and then I can take this one. And You understand. You can just, there's different ways to do it. But if I am driving home, and I have something on my mind that's heavy that I'm thinking about, or I'm intrigued of something I'm listening to, whatever, or I'm talking on the phone, I'm not thinking about any potential time savers. I'm just going in whatever way autopilot takes me. It's the same way with evangelism. If you're not waking up praying and thinking about evangelism and you're calling as a missionary and people, of course, nobody's just going to walk up to you and just kind of whack you on the back and say, hey, tell me about Jesus. They might. It's very unlikely. But as you go through your day-to-day life and you have your eyes peeled, looking for evangelistic opportunities, you're praying for opportunities. God, give me opportunities. Help me to see the opportunities you give me. And then sometimes making opportunities, just like you have to make a way to get home. You have to make opportunities with the gospel. You're looking. And, and before you know it, these things are everywhere. We are having conversations and people express their pain, their doubt. Their confusion, their frustration. These are all cries out for salvation. Let me give you an example. We moved into our neighborhood, which is really close to our, our church, uh, where we minister in Omaha. And it's an old, old section of town, 
honestly wanted to live in it because it was the most New England feeling place in Omaha, to be honest with you. Uh, just really old, really old for Omaha, 100 plus year old houses, right? So we're living in this place and we move in and we're thinking, how do we interact with our neighbors? We got all these people we're praying for, thinking about. And our next door neighbor to the north is cleaning up her yard. The yard's a mess. The house they obviously had a fire. Part of the front porch burned down. It's just all kinds of problems. And she comes out and she walks up to me and says, well, if you haven't heard already, I'm the black sheep of the neighborhood. I'm thinking, okay, how you doing? And she says, so you probably don't want to get to know us, but my name is, is Penny. And she's probably a, a 55-year-old woman. And I said, no, I haven't heard that. Quite honestly, but it's nice to meet you. And I start talking about her family. And she just she cuts me off and just starts talking. She's talking about her son, who's old, older, uh, in his twenties. Has had kind of a rough hand. He made poor decisions. Her daughter poor decisions. Before I know it, she's telling me her husband left her. The kids were smoking on the front porch, burned the place up. She's been working tirelessly for the last twenty-five years. She thought the house was the dream house. She was going to get it. Now she's watching her son's child because the mother left. So I'm listening to all this, and I'm just taking it in and putting it in categories, and I'm hearing, oh, promises that didn't deliver, pain, frustration, confusion, um, anger. She was angry. And then bitterness. And then she's like, oh, so you're a pastor cynicism, right? The whole thing. It was just going and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? And then suddenly I just, I'm thinking, like the gospel answers every single one of her problems. So we start talking to her, being friendly. She's not friendly. She hadn't been friendly. And you know what happens out of nowhere? The lady comes over, knocks on the door and says, can I talk to your wife? I said, sure. She comes in, she says, I would like you to start taking care of my grandson. I've watched you with your kids, and I like what I see. Can you take care of him during the day? They're about the same age as Bo. Sure, no problem. Christy starts talking, goes through the gospel with her, begins explaining it, praying for her about her her father's health. And now this woman comes over every morning and every afternoon, leans on the fridge. I would love to say she's been converted and she's doing something in church. She's not. It's been two years. She's heard the gospel dozens of times. We've interacted and looking at it. Now, that's the situation where I think there's got to be some some careful way to to look at because the temptation is to look at this person and just say, God's not going to save her. But he might. You've got to make the opportunity. You've got to take the opportunity. You've got to pray and keep going. This lady, she showed up at a prayer meeting at the church. She just walks in the church, comes in, sits down at the prayer meeting. And, and after the prayer meeting, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. People are praying for her to get saved and all this stuff. She has no idea. It's on the list. And, uh, and I just look and I just say, Penny, what do you think? And she's like, man, people got a lot worse problems than I do. I can't believe it. I mean, just tremendous openness there. So my encouragement to you would be to, to look at your neighbors, begin praying for them. The, the people you see at the, at the convenience store, at the restaurants, in the workplace, in transit, wherever you are, just be praying for them, thinking about them, opportunities. Because at the end of the day, I know my job is not to save 
Penny or anybody else. Let's get back to evangelism, what it is. What is it? It's faithfulness to the message and faithfulness in the action. Who does the saving? It's God. One waters, the other sows. It's God that brings the increase. It's God that saves people. What a liberating truth. Because here it is. He made a promise. He fulfills the promise. He commands us to go out and tell people about the promise. And He brings about the, the means by which people get converted. What a deal. What a great deal. Liberate us from the fear of bondage. So, the big picture provides some encouragement that the job will get done by reminding us that we have work to do. The fact that God is sovereign encourages us that we can't mess it up. I mean, we can mess up and be unfaithful with the action or the the message, but we ultimately, it's not our job to save people. Third thing I would just say is that evangelism is a privilege. What, What a great privilege we have to tell people about Jesus, to tell them what He's done for us, how He's the risen Savior, the King, and the Lord. And finally, I just think the fact that you have the beginning, Genesis, and you have the end, Revelation, and you have the command here, I think it, I hopefully, it, it, it puts some perspective on this thing we're calling evangelism. There's perspective here to what you're doing. You're not wasting your time. You're not engaged in some pointless activity. You're engaged in the work that brings about glory to God and salvation to people. So please don't minimize it that way. Remember, if you know the gospel, if you've been converted, you know the truth. And you can tell people that truth. I'll close with this. Remember John chapter 9, where the guy's born blind, Jesus heals him, and he gets kind of sideways with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they're going back and forth. And and they call him in, they're interrogating him, and they're asking him questions, and the guy has this brilliant answer. He says, hey, look, I was blind, but now I see. Why don't you go talk to him? That's pretty much what it is. What great evangelism. You, you say to your neighbor, your friend, hey, I'm going to tell you what, I was blind, but now I see. Why don't you talk to him? You explain it. You explain the gospel in a way that they can understand it, and then you trust God to do the work. All right? Well, let's pray and ask God to encourage us to this end. And then tomorrow we'll continue to think through some practical instructions for the ministry of evangelism. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time that we've had to see your big plan, the big picture. Encourage us tonight with the fact that the mission won't fail. You will accomplish what you have set out to do. Those that Christ has purchased will in fact reign. But you give us the privilege to speak the Word of God to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with the the greatness of the message, the privilege of the opportunity, And the fact that you, even as you remind us in the Great Commission, you are with us always. What a convicting and encouraging statement at the same time. You are with us 
and You see us in our lack of faithfulness, that You are with us, and You attend to our evangelism to bring about good and God-glorifying results. Thank You that You're with us. We pray that You would be glorified in the things that we talk about, the things that we do, even as we steward our time in this work of evangelism, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.